0: Welcome to segment two of this week's Tennis with an Accent podcast. I am Matt Zemek along with Saqib Ali. It's the Matt and Saqib segment. Uh, We hope you enjoyed uh, the first part of this week's show, which was part two of Saqib's interview with 1987 Wimbledon champion Pat Cash, who talked about a lot of topics in the world of tennis. Uh, He certainly let his feelings known in terms of where he stood on various issues. Um, So, um, you know, if you want to... Tell us what you thought about Pat Cash's opinions. Please let us know. But now Saka and I are going to talk about Wimbledon for a few minutes. And our starting point is that very emotional, very dramatic, and very well-played match between Rafael Nadal and Nick Kyrgios. It certainly got a lot of attention. I should add that, just speaking strictly as an American, the fact that that match was on the 4th of July, a holiday That certainly boosted ESPN's ratings for Wimbledon in the United States, and that helped the match get uh, more of a media presence in the United States. So, Sakib, watching that match, taking it all in, both the match itself and how people were reacting on Twitter and social media, a lot to digest. What are the thoughts that go to the forefront of your mind uh, when uh, sizing up that match?
1: You know, it's funny, Matt, Uh, I'm not as articulate as uh, you are in my thoughts, but I was thinking about when this match started and uh, I had the urge. I seldom use Facebook uh, to talk to my friends and I just put a post there, old fashioned post, not sharing anything. And I just said to all my non-tennis friends, if there's a tennis match, I would urge you to watch. This is the one, Kyrgios versus Nadal, because there's no love lost there. And uh, that also resonated along the lines with Nick Lester With a tweet, you know, he saw a young boy, you know, say the best thing about today's match was the underarm serve. So, trying to connect two points here. uh, I think people who just watch Wimbledon uh, or maybe U.S. Open in the U.S. or casual fans anywhere in the world, they know who Nadal, Djokovic, Federer are, and that's the trifecta that's been dominating tennis for. You know, we've spoken about that. Everybody's spoken about that. But Nick Kyrgios, I mean, is a very charismatic guy. And for a lot of people in the tennis community of fans, he's kind of the bad boy or someone even say we don't need him. But that's the kind of villain sometimes you need. Uh, again, I, I personally enjoy the guy. I'm, you know, I'm even a fan. So, but I'm just saying from the overall perspective, a lot of folks root against him. And he brings that X factor and Rafa Nadal because a little bit of animosity of the last match in Acapulco. Love some trash talking going on from Nick's side. So I think this is a match, very old school match. And I think this is sometimes good for tennis because Pat Cash said back in the day in the first episode of the podcast, uh, Lendl was known for sledging and Mac has said so many times on TV, Lendl would aim people, hit people, you know. Uh, Thomas Muster wasn't, you know, a very friendly guy when he was playing with the likes of Becker and, you know, Agassi. So slowly over the years, tennis has become more of a gentleman's game. And yesterday's match, Matt, I mean, you have written more about tennis than I've read about it. Didn't you feel the intensity even as a writer? I know, you know, you you probably haven't written about the match. So that kind of intensity is good. And usually we get these matches later stages when one of the big three is involved against each other or the Wawrinka or Andy Murray or Del Potro. But this match has some special X factor going for it. And, you know, you have to give Nick Keros his credit for playing the part. Of course, Rafa is a legend. He came out firing. He wanted to win this badly. That's why I think he got through this. Because he didn't want to lose to Kyrios again, so so many layers to this one. How how did you? What's your recap? And do you agree with the the sentiments I am putting? I know it's a mixed bag of sentiments. How do you respond to what you saw and what I'm saying?
0: Well, you know, to start with, it was incredibly gripping television and theater. Uh, First, because Nick Kyrios, you know, he he's impossible to look away from. Now, that when I say he's impossible to look away from. That doesn't necessarily mean you know, that everybody loves him. It's just that whether, he, whether you love him or you hate him, he is impossible to look away from. He's either your hero or your villain. He's either the guy who stirs up you know, this uh, country club sport, yeah, up the rebels. He's either that kind of guy or he's an obnoxious punk, which obviously Nadal fans think he is. Um, and certainly other fan bases on Twitter think he is as well. So just in terms of the theater, in terms of the character, in terms of the um, uh, artistic and literary identity that he carves out as a figure in the larger world of tennis, he's pretty irresistible, whether you whether for good reasons or bad. He has that magnetic pull. I mean, he polarizes everyone in the room, but he certainly gets everyone talking um, for one way or, or another. So you know the theater was top notch, and the tennis actually was really very good too. Because Kyrgios has such amazing racket skills. I mean, the racket skills are what just jump off the page with Kyrgios. His deft touch, his soft hands, uh, the 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 amazing things he can do with the tennis racket—they're very obvious. And the fact that he was, you know, going toe to toe with Nadal. For most of this match, that's one thing, but more impressive was that he was going toe-to-toe late in the third set, late in a fourth set. His body really didn't wear down, which is what I was thinking was was likely to happen, that as we got late into the match and the match uh, came close to you know three hours played, that Kyrgios was going to f- physically fade away, but he didn't. And You know, that shows me, even though this was a a, a grass match with, you know, quicker points and that, you know, Kyrgios would not have been able to do this on clay, uh, certainly not on court Philippe Chatrier, even if you acknowledge that, it was still an impressive physical performance from Kyrgios in that his body did not collapse. And I just have to wonder if this guy really did and really could commit himself physically to the sport of tennis how high could his ceiling be i mean that 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 question is one of the great what ifs right now in the world of tennis and so for all the ways in which curios in terms of both his playing style and uh the, the way he carries himself on court makes for great television uh you know all the, all that really is window dressing because when you compare curios to let's use an illustrative example here john McEnroe. Yeah, McEnroe certainly would uh, fly into anger and, and fits of rage and uh, a lot of the theatrical detours that Kyrgios is also subject to. But McEnroe allowed his anger to work well for him, and McEnroe could play through anger in such in ways that you know, he was able to win major tournaments and he was able to be at the forefront of men's tennis at the very top for several years, and so it has to be said, Sakib, that Nick Kyrgios has no business playing Rafael Nadal in the second round of Wimbledon because there's no way Nick Kyrgios, with his talent, should ever be playing a top five player this early. He should be a top ten seed, in which case his matches with the likes of Nadal and Djokovic and Federer they should be quarterfinals or semifinals at majors not second rounders. And so that's the price that Kyrgios pays for all the tournaments during the year when he plays out outside of the limelight and he doesn't put in the hard yards and he doesn't focus and he doesn't treat every match seriously. This is the price that Kyrgios pays. So that is kind of the, if not hidden, it's certainly a more subtle part of the subtext of this match that we saw this past week at Wimbledon.
1: And, uh, Let me just stick to this question for another uh, instance of uh, what happened in that match. Uh, You've covered American sports and we've brought the basketball analogy and, you know, the tough guy analogy and the trash talk sometimes, you know, standing up to, you know, the big champions. This has been, you know, a game that's been, called gentlemen singles at Wimbledon, but Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have embodied the spirit. I mean, their worst moments are very far and few and doesn't accumulate to anything that used to happen in the Nastasi Connors, Mac days, and even the young Becker when he took on Connors and McEnroe. So what did you find fascinating that Kyrgios was making it into a straight fight? He was just constantly complaining to the umpire that Nadal's, you know, taking long, and he made sure Nadal's listening. This was such a mind game, such a ploy, and uh, not that Nadal got rattled, Nadal is a very competitive guy, I sense, and that's the beauty of this match. I think there was no respect there, and Nadal still stayed pretty classy, but at the same time, Nadal wanted this bad. So that was, I think, something that's never this generation of fans has able to see this. So it was a very unique match. Like everything you said, you can't t- take your eyes off. Like it or not, Kyrgios make this box office and this one delivered.
0: It did, and so, you know, I, you know Nadal's comments to me indicated that, yes, you know, he was cognizant not only of what Kyrgios was trying to do to him, but that it had, to a certain degree, an, a, 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 its intended effect. But this is the greatness of Nadal, that, you know, he might have moments when he flinches, but he is so good at getting back on the bike and resetting and restoring and regrouping. And, you know, when he when he. Ha- as a bad patch, he responds to it. Well, and that of course is what all of the big three players do. So, you know, it, I, there really isn't a whole lot to complain about from a curios perspective in terms of how he played this match. I mean, the, the real defining factor was that he went for, uh, he, he went, he went for too much and he didn't play with enough margin on his backhand. Uh, his cross court backhand is the, really the one shot that let him down In several big moments, especially in each of the two tiebreakers, Um, he just went for the lines when he hits a ball heavily enough that he doesn't have to, you know, shrink his level of margin. So he was just too ambitious and Nadal playing the percentage tennis, which has elevated him to such enormous heights in his career. You know, it was Nadal was happy to let Kyrgios, you know, go for broke. Uh, and try to hit absurd angles if he was going to win points. And Kyrgios obviously couldn't hit those absurd angles. So, you know, but that, but that's still ultimately nitpicking. it. this was a match that was right there for Kyrgios. Tiebreakers. He had been five and zero in tiebreakers against Rafa heading into this match. So in this one, he went zero and two, and it was the proverbial handful of points. It was very close, and this is despite Kyrgios drifting through. The 2019 season, much as he's drifted through previous tennis seasons, and that just shows that Kyrgios, especially at Wimbledon, more than any other tournament, he can show up and be relevant. Uh, he can't really just show up at the French Open or other clay tournaments, even some of the hardcourt tournaments, but at Wimbledon with the grass, you know, where he beat Nadal uh, several years ago, this surface rewards his game and his touch uh, more than any other and it's and it's why he was a threat and you know, Nadal was very emotional when that match ended and you don't Pour out your emotions the way Nadal did if the opponent isn't significant, you know You don't you don't roar with satisfaction when you defeat a tomato can you roar with satisfaction when you know that you passed a tough test So Nadal knew that he did so the match itself is not a negative verdict on Kyrgios. He played the match well. The negative verdict is, why was this a second-round match? You know, Kyrgios should be in a place where this kind of match is a second-week match, and he's fighting for a major title, that that his uh, ranking is so low that he has to draw Nadal in the round of 64. That is really the negative commentary on Kyrgios.
1: No, I fully agree, and we'll move on to other discussions, but I'll still take this match in the second round, well, not able to see this match at all. So, you know, you have to pick our poison with Kyrgios because uh, you're right, absolutely, he's no business, you know, being ranked this low and meeting these guys this early. So anyway, there are a couple of other big names, you know, who will be, ta- be the talk of the tennis town and the tennis world for the years to come. Let's start with Coco Gauff, uh, what a run. I mean, starting with Venus Williams, and now she's made the second week. What are your uh, thoughts on how uh, the journey has started for this uh, young phenom?
0: Well, it, the starting point for Coco Goff is that she plays with composure that a lot of veterans, you know, 10, even 15 years older, fail to display. And, I mean, we, we every tennis player, I mean, even if you're a just a hacker on a public court or if you're playing at Wimbledon vying for a championship, everyone who's picked up a tennis racket and has played tennis uh, has played matches you, you, everyone knows the feeling of being late in a close match and feeling the pressure of you know needing to do something special or needing to find a, a way, any way possible, to win a point and going through the fear, the doubt, the uncertainty, the hope, uh, the anxiety, all the emotions that are part of playing this sport of tennis that we know so well. So, Coco Gauff. She went through that full range of emotions against Herzog uh, in the third round, and you know that followed playing her idol, Venus Williams, in the first round and playing 2017 Wimbledon semifinalist Magdalena Rybarikova, uh in the second round. So she went through a full range of experiences, and through those three matches uh, against three very different kinds of players, you know, her composure remained unshakable. I mean, she, she did look like a 15-year-old for the first set and a half against Herzog, uh, committed a number of double faults. Her ground strokes did break down at times. The forehand is certainly an underdeveloped shot at this point. But, you know, players are going to play poorly at times. How do they respond after they play poorly? Goff already knows how to pick herself back up and regroup as though the previous 10, 15, 20 minutes of bad tennis didn't happen. And so many pros don't know how to do that. I mean, everyone wants to. Everyone on tour is trying to do that kind of thing, to become the resilient player who overcomes obstacles. But Goff has demonstrated time and again this past week at Wimbledon an ability to do that and put that into practice with with a level of consistency that her peers lack. And you know, Herzog herself, She's 28, and if you just looked at these two players and how they handled that third-round match on Friday, you wouldn't know that Goff was the 15-year-old and Herzog was the 28-year-old. You might have felt that uh, the ages were reversed. And uh, I wrote a piece earlier this week at TennisAccent.com about how you know Madison Keys, who has never made the semifinals of Wimbledon, it's the only tournament uh, major tournament in which she hasn't made the semis, Madison Keyes is 24 years old. And if if only she could process and manage matches the way Coco Goff does, my goodness, if Keyes could display Goff's inner game and uh, that fortitude in terms of being patient, you know, look, um, imagine the career that Keyes would have. So Goff at 15 is doing things that players many years older than her struggle to do, I use that inner game hashtag and I talk about the psychology of sports not to suggest that, uh, you know, players usually blow leads when they get them because that doesn't happen, but I, but I illustrate that to show that there are so many players on tour, Sakib, who for whom their main problem is not their tactics or their shot selection or their technique. It's simply about how they handle pressure. Uh, I, you could, I think, put Herzog in that basket. You could certainly put you know, many other players, not just four or five or six, but dozens of players in that same category in that they have the raw tools. They have the physical components of a formidable game, but they don't handle pressure well, and the inability to handle pressure well is the number one thing which holds them back. That's really my emphasis when I talk about the inner game of tennis, going back to Timothy Galway's 1974 book. Coco Goff already seems to have a firm grasp of the inner game in ways older pros don't, and that's really the most remarkable thing about her.
1: Yeah, indeed. And that will make uh, a very special watch for anyone who is going to follow her career because, Matt, like you just said, uh, she has, uh, I guess, the inner game, which is an X factor. And I'm not going to add, because you were so articulate in uh, your response to that question. So let's quickly make a comparison. Uh, not with Koko but the first Wimbledon experience for Felix Oji Aliasim. He was supposed to meet Novak Djokovic on manic Monday. And today was a day when he fell short against uh, another talented Frenchman, Hugo Hombat. But uh, talk about Felix Auger-Aliassime, what this first three matches at Wimbledon means for him, and what's the larger picture here. Yeah, so I've written a piece at TennisAccent.com,
0: which you can uh, read, and I make the case that this is not a disappointment. I mean, obviously the tennis world really wanted to see Felix play Djokovic, uh, in, in the fourth round, and so that's not going to happen. But in, when I think of the notion of a disappointment, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, a person should have done this, but it didn't happen. You know, it's it's not acceptable. Uh, it's, it's a bad look. You know, this is a problem. This is a setback. You know, it, it's a damaging moment to a career. That's what I think of when uh, I either use the word or hear the word disappointment. So tennis players are going to lose hundreds of matches over the course of a career. Not all of them are or can be disappointments. You know, Roger Federer is going to lose to Rafael Nadal on clay. Is is that a disappointment? Uh, wh- you know, when you lose to the best clay court player of all time on his favorite court, I don't I don't see how it can be. You know, maybe you could pick out one of the French Open finals that Federer lost to Nadal, uh, but but generally, you know, the better player won. So you know, to to uh, to insist on labeling those matches as disappointments for Federer, you know, I don't think that word uh, is meant to be used that way. I think that you know, uh, the word disappointment is much more applicable to a situation in which you were supposed to win a match. You were supposed to accomplish a given goal. It was right there for you, and you didn't do it. So let's step back and get a reality check on Felix Al-Yassim. He's 18. This was his first go-round, and, and as a matter of fact, he hadn't won a main draw match entering Wimbledon. He won two matches at Wimbledon. This was a big step forward for him. This was a positive tournament. So to, to insist that, oh, He really should have beaten Ugo Umber in the third round and made his way to Manic Monday at Wimbledon. If we are insisting on that as though it is a demand or as though it obviously and naturally should have been done, that lacks any and all perspective in terms of understanding how tennis players evolve. And to underscore why Felix's Wimbledon this year is not a disappointment, let's look at his countryman, Denis Shapovalov. That is... Is what a disappointment looks like. That is, a, you know, a much more concerning, alarming, distressing progression of results in 2019, including at Wimbledon. So disappointment really needs to be looked at in a larger context. That word needs to be used with great care and skill, and if anyone is disappointed about Felix Auger Aliasim, That word, disappointment, really needs to be rethought and reconsidered. It definitely does not apply in this case.
1: Uh, Very well said. So on that note, I think uh, we can uh, wrap the conversation as uh, we still have the Pat Cash uh, uh, segment as part of the podcast. Uh, Any parting words, Matt, before we uh, wrap this?
0: So I definitely want to mention that our podcast is sponsored by Stats Insider based in Australia. That is Stats Insider. Dot com dot au, and once again, Sakib and I want to reiterate this point. Stats Insider isn't asking for your uh, monetary contributions, Stats Insider isn't looking for money. Just go to their website, statsinsider.com.au, for their tennis player rankings by surface, uh, also for their men's and women's Wimbledon tournament simulators. Check out the site for tennis, and also if you're a fan of Australian rules football, rugby, other sports. Uh, the cover they cover the NBA. Uh, I, I think they're they're in the process of trying to develop coverage for both cricket, uh, not immediately, but I think for 2020, and also for Major League Baseball. Statsinsider.com.au. Saka and I are so grateful. To Stats Insider and the team over there, Nick Splitter, Greg Buten, and James Roseworn, whom we had on last week's show to explain that grass rankings formula, we're really thankful to Stats Insider for sponsoring our podcast here at Red Circle. So StatsInsider.com.au. Please check yeah. it out. The official Tennis World Rankings can only tell us so much which is why the predictive analytics and data experts from Australia, Stats Insider, custom-built their own tennis world ranking system, separate and independent of the official ranks, filterable by surface. We think they're better than the official rankings, and here's why. The official rankings, which are updated monthly, take into account the player's basic wins and losses and how far they advance in each tournament with larger tournaments worth more ranking points than some of the smaller ones. Here's where the Stats Insider Tennis World Rankings are different. The Stats Insider World Rankings aren't just based on how many matches a player has won or lost. Stats Insider's rankings also take into account who each player's opponent was in each of those matches, plus the surface the match played on to determine how many points are allocated to or removed from the player's ranking. This allows players to rise or fall in the rankings not simply based on their win-loss record, but also accounting for who they defeated or were defeated by and on what type of surface. The best thing, these rankings are updated daily to keep you completely up to date. You can actually filter the men's and women's rankings pages by court type, allowing a better understanding of which players are performing well on the different surfaces. For example, right now, just prior to Wimbledon, the ATP has Milos Raonic ranked at number 17 in the world. Stats Insider also has the big Canadian ranked 16th overall, but number 4 in the world on grass courts, behind only Marin Cilic, Novak Djokovic, and the legend himself, Roger Federer. Check out the Stats Insider tennis world rankings at statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. That's statsinsider.com.au. Wimbledon is arguably the most prestigious event on the tennis calendar. The newly crowned world number one, Ash Barty, recently ended Australia's 46-year drought at Roland Garros, and all eyes will be on her in the next fortnight. Over on the men's side of things, Roger Federer is looking to equal Martina Navratilova's five nine Wimbledon singles titles and remind the world why he's called the King of Grass. While these two are the tournament favorites, it doesn't mean they are complete unbeatable. What do you mean, I hear you asking? That's right. As we all know, there are other possibilities at the All England Club in 2019. Enter Stats Insider's free Wimbledon Simulator. The Australian-made tournament simulator is the best way to explore Stats Insider's Wimbledon predictions, providing hours of entertainment while you work your way through up to 10,000 different tournament journeys. Simply select the player whose Wimbledon journey you want to follow, then sit back and watch the simulator do its thing. Each time you click Simulate, the entire tournament will simulate match-by-match Processing through one single possible tournament outcome from up to 10,000 possible Wimbledon championships. Unhappy with the result or want to see a different variation? Just run through the simulator again and you'll have a different outcome. Remember, there are 10,000 possibilities in total. So, unless you've got something hot on the stove or have an important presentation to prepare for in the morning, have a play around with your favorite contenders and look at all the different possible ways that Wimbledon could play out. Find the Wimbledon simulator at statsinsider.com.au and click tennis to access all Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. That's statsinsider.com.au.
1: Well, i've seen you at the open as a fan a few years ago. I wanted to ask this, but you know you can 't approach now. I got the opportunity, so this was something that always you know stayed with me uh, anyway so let 's talk about your injuries. You are one of the fittest guys now. you still look pretty you know very good i mean uh, but injuries had a role to alter you know your career. you think uh with all the information and all the training methods you know how people have you know uh uh, have long careers you think uh, your career would have been different if uh, this information was available or your injuries were too severe mm. that you still would have uh, it's the career still would have been cut short
2: um hard to say but i'd say i probably uh i oh, look bi- biomechanically uh you know I was, I was born with a few few things that were very unusual um my knees um a lot of power and and that came through my knees but they were uh uh, very tight tight joints so i was always in a risk of a danger of risk of that i think we probably analyzed it a bit better these days than we than we they would have back then um and we had some so i mean uh, you know the people who rehab my knees are now you know, they're the ones that are writing the textbooks that the physios are, are seeing and and i'm a, i'm a case study in more than one one physio book uh doctor's book um so you know they learn people learn from you know, incidences and and, and, uh, and different sports people and and I was one who had a lot of injuries and, you know, it was almost like, well, in a case of this, like, as in Pat Cash, uh, Pat Cash had this type of back and this type of knees, you know, we would recommend that the physio do this, blah, blah, blah. Back then, they didn't know. They were just like, oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, there's no doubts I would have lasted longer but, you know, the way that we played in those days, I don't, you don't see too many players in my era walking around uh, without a limp or a bad some, this or that. Uh, it was a, you know, the serve and volley was very, very aggressive. You know, it's serving, twisting, turning, lunging. Um, very few people in my area got to get, to get away without having a couple of hip replacements. and That was just the nature of it. You know, we went hard. Um, we didn't have, I mean, I did a lot of rehabbing every day, a lot of stretching, uh, icing. You know, I was, I was very particular and, you know, I got injured Almost the most of anybody. So, you know, you never know. Peter McNamara, a good buddy of mine, one of the super max, never stretched in his life. Ivan Lendl never stretched in his life, though Ivan's had a couple of hip replacements and everything else. But Peter McNamara, he said, never stretched in his life, and, uh, and neither did Agassi. Uh, and they they had long careers, but you know, obviously Agassi's suffering a bit now. But Peter's still haven't had it, never had a problem with it, with him. So. You know, so it's just uh, sometimes it's the way you're born, you know, and I think that's the case, probably the case of, you know, uh, uh, Federer and Nadal. You know, Federer's barely been injured his whole career and he's very light. This is the way he's born. You know, Nadal's a, a bull of big, big engine and ma- big muscles and. You got big muscles like that. You can hit the ball super hard, um, but there's, there's often things go wrong with those muscles and, and the and Djokovic, things that attach to the muscles. And
1: Djokovic is super elastic. I mean, we haven't seen a guy yeah. like that. Yeah. So you know, that, yeah, that's,
2: that, that's right. So everybody's different, and and um, so uh, injuries can come to all different people for different reasons.
1: I'm enjoying this conversation. There's some very insightful uh, answers, and anyone who is my generation or even die-hard tennis fans would really like so far how this podcast has gone. So let's quickly talk about tennis uh, politics all over. You know, there's always some news with tennis. Are you of the opinion that tennis needs a unified body that's governing? I know it's a complicated issue with ITF, you know, ATP, and then, you know, there are so many changes that have happened uh, do you believe there should be a union and a commissioner? I've asked this to Darren Cahill. I mean, this is something, a generic question. What's What are your views on that?
2: Um, I'll, yeah, it, it's been the way it's been for so long. Uh, look, it's, it's better now than it used to be. Put it that way. Uh, it's, the associations... I think the International Tennis Federation have got a lot to answer for. They really have screwed up a lot. Um, I think the... The current president um, is uh, is not great I'm hoping that he would change uh, I think he's ruined Davis Cup which is the greatest sport, tennis tennis uh, team competition that we have um, we've changed that for the for the worse uh, and let be the same it's it's taken away um, it, it's it's taken away the pride of everybody that's played Davis Cup and, and 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 mocked it, um, and turned it into some one-week competition. The whole thing about Davis Cup is a home and away. That is that is what Davis Cup is. You play at home, you play away, you're invited in, you meet people from different countries and eras, and uh, you yeah, know that that's the whole thing about tennis friendship or rivalry. Uh, and they just made a mockery of everything, and and um, they shouldn't call it Davis Cup. It should just you retired and they call it the World Cup of Tennis or something, whatever they want to call it. Um, you know, and that's just an absolutely horrendous decision. And then they just keep making bad decisions, the ITF. So, they, uh, until recently, they didn't even have tennis players, an ex-player on the board. Uh, at least they have Mark Woodford, and Martina Navratilova, and I think uh, Mary Pierce to actually sort of give some advice from the players' perspective. But, you know, they just made rules up as they went along. And, and then the simple, basic rules... That would improve tennis. They just haven't got the guts to do. Um, so they've just been really badly informed, real bad bad judgment. Um, things like a uh, you know simple rules, the let on the serve. I mean, it's ridiculous that we even have the let on the serve. Uh, throwing the ball, toss up, and then catching it. Uh, you've started your tennis motion. Yeah, you, you, you know they want to they want to quicken up tennis. yet they let. Sometimes I let players throw play the ball up two times in a row, So say catch it. And go, oh, sorry, oh sorry, you've already started your tennis motion. That's a fault. So, yeah, it's just, it's
1: on that note, activity. on that note, it's pretty exciting. I mean, uh, and what are your thoughts on uh, reducing majors from best of five to best of three? I'm sure you've asked this, been asked this like a million times. But that's a very important, integral part of the sport that many purists, you know, diehard tennis fans don't want to see this change. The counter argument is no other sport has this problem on TV, like a match can go five hours and fans can't plan it. But that's what tennis is. It's, you know, NBA games go over time, too. It's just how the fans consume. I mean, I've never seen a guy who's going to the U.S. Open buying tickets. Oh, man, I hope it's not a five-setter. I mean, I don't know where this mindset is coming from. What are your thoughts on best of five?
2: <laughs> I, I can't agree. I mean, it is a grand slam after all. I mean, I think... Um... I think the ATP have done a really good job and the WTA are, you know, are following suit. They're doing their best. But the ATP done a really good job of promoting a, a tour, um, which is really a tour that people don't really care about. Um, I'm, it's, it's, you know, it's tournaments that nobody really – you know, I mean, the, some of the, the bigger tournaments, Madrid's nice, Monte Carlo's great, yeah, Indian Wells. Some of these tournaments, yeah, it's great to win the Miami. Yeah, sure, make a lot of money. But you know, in the end, who cares? I mean, you want to win the Grand Slam. It's all about the Grand Slams. You know, these tournaments are uh, great pocket money and it's in good entertainment. But it is what it is. So the Grand Slams are what it's about. Grand Slams should be the te- the, the pure test of of endurance uh, of uh, of your mental to, to see see how it goes. And that's on on a clay court or grass court or whatever it happens to be in extreme conditions. I think it's really brutal on the players. Um, and, but I think men and women should be playing five sets at some stage. Women don't have – maybe not all the, the time, but certainly for a final, they should be playing best of five sets. No doubts about that. A, and they equal prize money, they should be doing an equal equal final. So it's um, – you know, it, to say that they can't is is just completely it's discriminating against the women. They say, oh, they – you know, they, they, I haven't heard a proper argument to suggest – that they shouldn't play a five five sets. I've never heard one other than, well, we don't watch that much. Uh, rubbish. You want to watch a five-set final of Serena playing somebody else? you going to be kidding me? I'd love to watch it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, because you know, back in the day, uh, the, in the World Tour of uh, the year in championship, I think Hingis and Graf played a five-setter, and they used to have that tournament in New York where it, where it was. The uh, women's year and finals uh, title match was always best of five, and there were some great five-setters. I think Sabatini and Celis played a five-setter.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's for sure. So, look, I think that the, if you're playing, you know, I suppose I'm being a little harsh and saying who cares about the ATP final, ATP tour, but the bottom line is um, uh, that you know the Grand Slams are what it's all about. They're the true test. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe I'm old school. I still like test matches. I still like who's the best. Who's the best? You know, in the cricket. The, the uh, you play a five you play over five days to see who the best team is and you slug it out for five days five long days and Absolutely. that's the true test. Sure, the other other things are glamorous the one day the one days or the twenty twenties or the sevens in rugby or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, they're exciting. They're fun to watch and and they're entertaining. And I'd go and watch them. Absolutely, I go and watch them. Are they the true test? Who's actually the best over five days is a true test, and that's. Uh, I would shake your
1: hands if I was sitting next to you because I'm ultimate, you know, Test cricket fan too, and you just, you know, just made a you know big smile, and I'm going to talk to all my friends, <laughs> you know, who are. I understand the other part of cricket is good, but yeah, that's the ultimate uh, test of your skill. You cannot hide in a it Test is. match. You can't.
2: It's the ultimate, it's the ultimate test of the skill. Don't we want to see the best of the best and battling it out? You know, the, it's like saying, saying boxing. All right, we're going to make world, champion, world title fight here, one-on-one, like tennis, man-on-man, and we're going to do it... Let's do it for five rounds instead of twelve rounds. So what does that mean? It's so, nothing. It's just cutting, taking away the half of the contest. So you, oh, okay, we'll make it
1: seven rounds instead of 12. What?
2: That's right. ridiculous as well. So,
1: <laughs> so, Pat, I'm sure this uh, is going towards, like, uh, you know, in your home country, you know, uh, there's a fast four tennis that's being promoted. So that, does that scare you or you think that's just entertainment? I hope it doesn't even creep into the ATP Tour because best of three sets is pretty good. It's still better than we don't need Fast 4. What are your thoughts on Fast 4? Well, I think Fast 4 is very good at club level.
2: I think it's very good club and junior level uh, because it's parents can bring the kids in or you can go and play a, a, a match. You start at 9 in the morning and you're done by 11. Right, you've got the rest of the day. You're not a professional tennis player. You've got the rest of the day. You've got your family you go in, you play a couple of hours of good tennis, uh, at club level, um, and, and uh, at junior, uh, junior level, you know, when the, the parents have all day to sit around and wait for their, their kids to play. And it's the next match or third match. So I, I think, I actually think fast four is a really good format in that, that respect. I, I really don't
1: hope it comes into top level professional tennis though. All right. So before we move on to coaching, that should be the last segment. And, uh... Uh, Let me just get your opinion on the Wimbledon seeding. You said, you know, like they always have been the seeding. You know, the grass has its own formula. In two thousand, early two thousand, I think some Spanish players were threatened because, you know, with sixteen seeds, a guy like Ferrero, who could probably was number seven, could be bumped to sixteen or even not seeded. That's why that was one of the reasons they went to thirty-two seeds to allow all sort of you know top players to be seeded. But grass is such an alien surface. So this seeding problem has been there, but now Nadal got seeded three and Federer is two. It's making a lot of noise. What are your thoughts on that? Because the formula is in place. Uh, There's a school of thought. They say Nadal, you know, reached the semis. He should be seeded two. He's world number two. But then there's a school of thought. If he wanted to be seeded two, he could have just entered an event and bagged 100 points and, you know, uh, end of story. Where do you stand with this uh, overall, with the rule and... Uh, is this talk, you know, like good in a slam or, you know, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, um,
2: I don't think grass and any other surface is that much difference uh, than a, an than a extreme difference like it used to be. I think 20, 30 years ago, I think it was a legitimate reason, to, as I explained, about grass court players and clay court players. And, you know, I was seated number 11. At Wimbledon, but I was really probably number five on, on the grass, and then the other way around on the clay. You know, I'd be might be eleven, but I would really only be you know twenty or twenty or thirty uh, on the clay. So, and I'd be, I'd res- respect that. But um, but the you know, the flip side is you play your whole year to try and get a seating so you can you know get into get into Wimbledon and uh, you know be protected um, to a certain extent, um, and that's a good thing. I don't do I I don't think thirty two players need to be protected. I think. I think 32, the number 32 player in the world deserved a bit of a a free ride against one of the other seeds. I don't think so. 32? Uh, Yeah, 16? That's plenty, I would have thought. Uh, I think there was certainly... I thought they were changing it. I mean, I heard that they'd voted to change it back to 16 seeds, but maybe it didn't get through. Um, But it certainly hasn't turned up yet, but I think it should go back to 16 seeds. And Nadal, well... Look, if you got a formula he has performed very poorly until last year. Um for for several years, for five years he was injured or whatever, he didn't get through the first round or second round for four or five years. Last year he did pretty well. He really gave Djokovic a a real run for his money. Um, I think it's very hard to argue off the back of that whatever formula they have. The guy has just won French Open, you know, for for the 12th time. He's not injured, he's not out of form. He's in red hot form and it's very it's very harsh to uh you know to have him uh you know uh, potentially in the same half as as a number 1 seed he may not be in the end depends what gets pulled out of the hat but uh uh it's probably pretty harsh um but uh you know in the end it's a long tournament before you get to the semi finals and play those guys so anything can happen
1: no, absolutely. The other guy who got bumped up is Kevin Anderson, but I guess that the more focus is uh, one and two shouldn't be in the same half. That's the path most conversations are taking.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 that's, that's probably true. But um, you know, they they do they, until some of these the, the match committee uh, make a decision. I think some of them, you know, Tim Henman, I think, is in, involved in that. He understands tennis pretty well, uh, but he's not the only one on the match on the match committee. So. Um, you know they made that decision for, for whatever reason. They got some formula. They they say it's pretty fair, uh, but I think they really don't realize that grass is not that different. If they went out and played grass, you play on an Australian Open is way faster, and U.S. Open is way faster than the first round's uh, speed of the court of grass at, at Wimbledon. So hmm. why don't they why don't they do that? Why don't they make Nadal drop Nadal down on a faster court? Why don't they do that at U.S. Open? I mean that's it actually which makes more sense. It was a quicker court the first few days. Uh, the grass courts were actually really sol- quite slow. Um, as I said, after by five, day five or six, it's really starting to heat up, and by the second week, it's fast. For the first few days, want to get anybody who stays at the baseline, want <laughs> to just move them out of the tournament. Uh, so I don't know why I don't know why they came to, come to these decisions. But uh, you know, Henman's an educated guy,
1: smart guy. Maybe he voted against it. I don't know. He's not the only one voting anyway. Okay, and uh, let's talk about, you know, your coaching. Uh, you work with Coco Manewe and now you are consulting with Alexi Popper, and, Uh Is there any criteria when you a player approaches you or you are interested in a player? Uh, is there anything you're looking for, like the player must at least, you know, buy in one idea or one, you know, how do those con- uh, conversations work? I mean, of course, talent is one and if you're yeah. interested. Is there a single uh, deal breaker or deal maker like what you are looking in a player and vice versa? Um, well, deal breaker is, is their attitude,
2: uh, without a doubt. I, I couldn't be bothered wasting my time or their time if they're not, if they're not willing to work. Um, simple as that. If they're willing to do well. Um, and the players that I've had, Filipusis, uh worked with Baghdadis a bit, the grass court season a few years ago. He was very keen to do well. Uh, the grass, and he did well that year. Uh, they were carrying a little injury, but um, they're, they're willing to learn and willing to willing to give 110. percent So that's the most the most important thing. Um, I also look at areas where they can improve. Yeah, that that's for me. I'm a I'm a coach to to help them get better. The the, the overriding goal is to improve. That's all it is, and the results will come when you improve. And ideally, I can help them piece those those things together as as a tactic but the most important thing is they improve whatever aspect that may be sometimes it's technical sometimes it's tactical uh sometimes it's mental i mean there's there's loads that's the thing about tennis there's just so many different parts to a game of tennis that's why it's the greatest sport in the world it's uh, the tough and the toughest sport in the world without, without a doubt Played by more people, it's the hardest, biggest, most professional. I would say golf is probably the equivalent, but of course you don't have to run around five sets like the guys did today. I saw killing themselves on a golf course. Um, so and then there's all that, that mental battle, of course, with the, with the, everything else that comes with with a physical battle. So yeah, look, I mean, for me, uh, the players I worked with, it was. It was pretty obvious that where where, where they could improve. Um, I changed my game tech. I was never really technically perfect as a player, but at the, at the end of my career, I went back and and changed everything. I worked with a biomechanist uh, to correct partially technique and partially because of injuries. Um, when you when you when you got a tech technique problem, um, you tend to get injured uh, if you have got a technique. Technical de- deficiency, your body moves not quite in the right manner it's supposed to. You can tend to get uh, get injury. So it worked both ways. But I I studied underneath or with alongside and helped by amazing biomechanist called Brad Langavad from Australia. And um, you know we re- rebuilt my game, rebuilt Rosedski's game as well. Uh, not all of his game, but some of it. Even even his serve because he had most famous for his serve, but he had a bad toe. He couldn't put weight through his toe, so we had to change him from being a platform serve, as they say, so two feet sort of on the ground, to bringing the foot up. So he changed his serve completely, even though he had the most deadly serve in the... the, Well, it's hard to say more deadly than Ivanovic or Krychek, but certainly around uh, very deadly. So um, I've come to realise that technically if you have issues, that, that is going to get caught out. So that would be my first step, would be to look at technical things and how to do it is really tricky because you're on the road half the time uh, and you've got to sort of fit in you know a week here to improve stuff. And then, of course, you don't want to be start thinking about your swing as, as your opponent's serving in a match. You want to be just watching the ball and then everything go automatically. So there's a mental aspect that goes alongside with that as well and the concentration and the confidence and Everything else, so it, it's all it's all encompassing. There's not one specific thing. Tennis is a such mm. a broad game that it's all interlinked. It's all interlinked, and you can't avoid one thing is not interlinked with the other thing. So you have to look at the whole thing as well as you can. And I I feel that I'm pretty good at that, having mm. had the experience, had the experience of re, rebuilding my game scientifically, having the injuries and having to rebuild myself medically as well as having the experience and uh, know-how mentally, which was probably my strength, really, more than anything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And now you've been in tennis, you know, pretty much all your life. You've been, you know, coaching and, you know, been retired for a while, but you're so involved with the game. So you think uh, overall with, when the young players are coming, do you notice that, uh, is there a shot that the tennis coaches are not uh, coaching these days? I'm sure it's taught, but not in depth because, uh, and why do you think the, that's happening, especially if you even take a shot like Wally? Uh, what do you take uh, take on you know overall uh, yeah. coaching conditions or coaching programs?
2: Well, um, look, the volley is very simple. There's not much technique to it, um, but you have to get it right. And it's because because uh, of the strings and the rackets. Uh, you know, the thirteen-year-old boys are hitting the ball harder than I ever did during my career because because of, of the equipment. Um, so it makes it all that tougher. Technically, you've got to be ready for the for a volley. You have to be have to be uh, very very precise. So in a way, the volley needs more technique precision than it ever has. But it's also, and I said said this in my academy to most of the kids. I said, look, unless you can unless you want to compete with Rafa Nadal and 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 uh, Novak Djokovic uh, and, and outlast them, I said, good luck with that. Um, Get in the net and learn the volley and finish a point off. And so, it's, in actual fact, we've seen the volley come back a lot in the last, uh, I'd say, six years or so. Um, it's come back a lot, and that's because players realise you got to finish the point off. Otherwise, they kill each other. And then the best, the best guys in the world are that of Djokovic and Nadal. So you know, have a look at those guys, and if you can compete with them, good luck. Off you go. If you can't, learn, get in the net and learn to volley and finish the point off when necessary. So, um, but that's definitely a shot that's not as well coached
1: as it, as it used to be. Hmm. Um, and are there shots, uh, Pat, that are not taught even or maybe uh, fine-tuned at the pro level, uh, say, between the two tours? Is there a shot that stands out like that's overused or underused on the WTA versus ATP? Well, I mean, certainly the volleys one, as we just discussed. But I think
2: um, I think variety. I think I think the gamesmanship and and how to cr- how to how to create a point is is um, being lost on the big the generation who just want to hit the ball hard. Um, there's certainly more to, to to hitting the ball to tennis than hitting the ball hard, though it is important. So, uh, you know, obviously you want to hit a winner at some stage. You you, you can't again if you just want to get the ball back then. You're gonna somebody's gonna come up there and hit the ball hit the ball back and hit the ball harder. So, you know, it's um but it's been able to create a point and and you know a lot of the lot of a lot of points uh, or a lot of tennis is about creating the opportunity to finish the point off. Um that's the that's the majority of it. Now that may be with a good serve. Um you that you in my day it was all I was looking for is a little bit of a miss hit or a uh, or a, uh, the opportunity to, to finish the point off at the net. You know, we were very brave. We used to serve, you think about it, we served not as hard as the guys these days and came in uh, off the back of that uh, in order to, to put pressure on the opponent to make them nervous or hit a volley away. So, you know, we would, I would do that, or myself, whoever, Ed Berg, we would, we would do that until they, you know, mentally or, or physically, we broke their shot down. And they couldn't play it anymore. Rafter or his classic. Rafter was probably the last great serve volleyer um, that we, well, we may ever see, for that matter. Mm. Um, and, you know, the idea was to get just a short, a short ball, a slight miss hit off the return, and then we'd be on top of the net and finish the volley off. These days, or you want a slight miss hit off the return and you can back it up with a forehand or a backhand winner. So the, the principle is still the same. Um, get the short ball somehow. How do you do that? Well, you know that depends on what your shots are and what your tactics are, and what you have
1: available in your in your toolkit. Hm. Right, so you you, you with Alexei Popper you know, in the glass grass court season, many players do that. Even you know uh, Stan Wawrinka has hired Richard Krajicek. I think not too long ago as a grass court consultant. So during this phase, uh, when you are you know preparing him and he's entered his main draw at Wimbledon now. Uh, What part of coaching uh, will be the most talked about or most practiced between your alliance with him? Will it be tactics, techniques or the mental game versus when you are spending the same duration with uh, same coaching uh, uh, alliance with Coco Veneway, but that's uh, for a full season? So talk about the Mm -hmm. differences there. Um it was actually not that many differences.
2: Uh closer to the tournament you don't want to be starting you, you, again you don't want to be talking too much technique. Um yeah you know, obviously with Coco over 18 months or a, a a year we get to know each other pretty well. We get to I get to know exactly what she can and can't do. Uh and we work on those things bit by bit by bit. Um when I met her volleys were I'd say very average. Very average I think by the time she won the U.S. Open doubles with Ash Barty this year. I would say she's probably in the top five volleys uh, in the in the women's game. I wouldn't have put her in the top thirty. So you know that was important to fix that. Um, various other shots as 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 well. Uh, and, and again, it's all it goes hand in hand. So uh, with Alexi, we've got limited time. We knew that we needed to work on his returns. Um, I came up with uh, an idea. Uh, he's he's re- he's full time coach. Uh, Philip Wagner uh, is is um, based out of Moratoglu. They uh, Alexi sort of bases himself in Nice, so he does it as a training a training place. And um, uh, so he has a sort of a coach that travels on the road. I've sort of come in as a consultant and said, look, you know, you, I, and, and and honesty is the most important thing. Uh, and I was pretty honest. I said, Alexi. Unless you fix this and this, you're never going to make it to top 10. As simple as that. And sometimes it's not a very nice conversation to hear when when your parents are listening and uh, you look at somebody in the face and say, "Mate, unless you fix that, you're not going to make top 10. You never win a grand slam. What are you going to do about it? And usually the response is, I want to fix it. And that's what I want to hear. I go, right, great. Do you know how? And that's the next one. And I said, and they go, well, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe, I, you know, we, I need to do this, don't I? And I said, yeah, yeah, but how do you do that? You've got to fix the technique and you've got to get the work on it. So we, we came up with a game plan and, and um, to fix a few things. Um, you know, we worked hard on the last three weeks. And at the moment, we're just letting it ride by him playing his matches. And, you know, we know that's not. we're not expecting perfection. But sometimes it'll work. Sometimes you'll make a couple of mistakes and you'll look across and shake his head and we'll go, don't worry, mate. Keep going at it. Keep keep practicing. And at the end of the tournament, you know, we will not focus on technique much at, much at all, a little bit. Just a reminder in the practice sessions. But bottom line is, it's a lot about the, the tactics. But the, the, it's, again, it's interwoven because you can't hit a certain shot unless your technique is properly. So I could say to him, listen, I want you to hit that as an example, of cross court backhand, heavy topspin, cross court backhand, uh, you know, into, into the corner, and follow it up with a with a slice backhand. Well, his technique's not good. He's not going never going to be able to do that. He'll try all he's like, and he'll miss, you know, six six out of ten of those. And he'll look at me and go, "Why are you telling me that? I can't hit that shot." Uh, he'll lose his match. You get upset and say, "Well, well we, we you know," so. You know, it's it's you do your work on the practice court and then you, hopefully he'll implement it and get confidence as he goes along. It, that works over a year, two years, and that's the way we used to do it. And we used to stay with a coach for a year or two or three years and build on the plan, the game plan. These days it's a very, uh, oh, yeah, it didn't work. We didn't get along. I didn't, you know, six, three months later you're, somebody else is hired and fired. And uh, for that reason, I think that some of the some of the tennis is not near as good as it as it used to be, even though it's mm-hmm. big and powerful. But uh, and, and and I remember Neil Fraser, my Davis Cup captain, saying that to me uh, when we were we were playing. Go, and he go and he said he said, you know what, we were better we were better tennis players than you guys, and we all laughed. Ah, oh, rubbish! You want the she never had proper rackets, wooden rackets. We we use these rackets, and that he said. And I so, said, you know, we were kind of, we had a joke with each other. But, you know, of course, he was in the era of Rod Laver and Ken Rose all, and all that sort of stuff. So it's hard to argue goes, I'll tell you why we're better players. I go, go on, shout Come on, old man. Tell us, tell, us a, tell us a story. Go on. And he goes, I'll tell you why. Because we used to spend three months at the end of the year working on our, on, our, on our fitness and working on our technique to become better players. So when do you have three months? So you have like three weeks at the end of the year to work on something. And uh, we couldn't couldn't argue against that. Like, yeah, he said we three months we'd come back and we'd have that shot fixed. He couldn't damage us with that, that shot. That shot was great now. Said you this still got a problem three years later. And I'd be like, Well, he's got a bloody, he's got a he's got a, a a large element of truth in that. So um you know that is that that is the challenge as a as a as a coach, you get fired if you don't get it right and uh if you do get it right it's Sometimes it's a quick fix, but a lot of the time it's not. And you just got to keep plugging away at it and uh, uh, find some time. And it's not always easy. Lex, he's 100 in the world. He's barely making ends meet. Um, you know, so he, he's, uh, you know, he, the first priority is to win tennis matches, but it's chicken and an egg. Yeah. How are you going to win tennis matches if you don't fix your technique, if you don't fix these things? I mean, yeah. luckily he's got a good game anyway. You will win matches, but there's a lot of people on the tour like that. I'm paying hotel bills, I'm playing fights, I'm playing for my coach. I can't make ends meet. So we well, take three months off, let's fix it. Take three months off? How am I gonna take it? I'll go no ranking left? I and mean, there's one of the big flaws of tennis, is the twenty four uh twelve month ranking system. That's just a shocker. It should be twenty four months. Uh, they they talked about it. It should absolutely be twenty four months. You see players more and more now getting injured and just being ended up one player's twenty in the world one week and then and then playing qualifying Wimbledon the next before you know it. So, uh, you know, scrambling around for a small tournament. So, it's, uh, if you think it's easy out there, you, you're, uh, you're fooling
1: yourself. Mm. Now, that's quite an interesting uh, information right there. So, you think, again, that the way you and other coaches are coaching now, because the surfaces are homogenized, serve and volley is less, are you guys focusing more on the transition game? Because that's one way of, you know, attacking. You think that's something that's coach enough? And do you coach transition game enough? Well, yeah,
2: I mean, transition game to the net. Uh, you're talking about yeah. I mean, you have to. I mean, that's uh, uh, yeah. It's a huge part of it. It's, but again, it's all it's all uh, it's all combined. So, uh, you know, today we've been working on the slice back end. That was one of the things we said to Alexi. You know, you're six foot five. You're an unbelievably good athlete. You know, and you've got a good slice back in. You know, if you get a good slice back in and you're under pressure on a break point, hit that right into the corner, there's no ch- no chance that guy's going to pass you. Um, and he didn't have the confidence, but we worked at it. And, you know, today it worked worked really well on a number of occasions. But, you know, if you can't volley, then it's a complete bluff. The guy just hits it to you and you'll miss the volley. So, uh, you know, look, it all works. It works together, but you do have that transition. But there's more you know, big put away forehand, practicing, uh, you know, drills and this, I mean, the, all this sort of stuff did come along around uh, with the Spanish coaching system, drills, drills, short ball, uh, ball feeding out of the hand, out of the basket, you know, whacking as hard as you can, whack, whack, whack. So they, they become very, very good at that. And that's, that works well on the clay and it's transitioned through the rest of the rest of the tour. And, um, for a number of years now, of course, this, you know, Rafa was just one of the sort of latter-day Spaniards. You know, after uh, you know Moya and uh, Corretja and you know these sort of these sort of guys and Ferrero, um, you know, just another one of those guys, uh, Costa, who had massive, big forehand and, and uh, put a, put the ball away. So that transitioned well through the tour when the tour, all the courts became very slow. Almost overnight, when the tour decided to slow everything down and the balls and everything else, then it was a clay court players, clay court players heaven to be on tour on the slow court. So that big forehand uh, winner was, uh, you know, what became paramount, and it's obviously still in the
1: game. Hmm. Uh, let's also talk a little bit about Ash Barty, her success putting Australian tennis back into the map. You think she's as complete a player? Uh, you know, uh, again. That can be controversial, what is complete, what is not. But do you think she has a complete game? Uh, and that's why, you know, we can expect more success from her. Uh, yes, I think she's the
2: smartest player. There's no doubts about it. I don't think she initially intended to to create a certain style of play. Um, but she's very effective with a heavy topspin forehand and a very good slice backhand. Um, she's one of the quickest movers. She's the best volleyer on tour, without a doubt. Um, uh, and uh, so she's got a lot of variety, and, and as I talked about, the the women's tour in particular, and the men's tour, but the women's tour in particular, is as a tour of just hitting the ball, feeding, hitting the ball hard. Now, when you've got something a bit of variety, a bit of slice, uh, and you're quick, and you can retrieve to retrieve any of those big shots, what are the you know? You've really got you got you got your players tied in. You got your opponent tied in knots. So uh, and that's what she does. She she's she very clever with her, her serve. She's improved her serve, so she's getting a lot of free points, aces. She's got a good kick serve. She's got a good flat serve. Um, so she is a very complete player.
1: I mean, I think. Is you know, it also difficult for the other girls to play against that kind of style? That kind of you know, Oh yeah,
2: they can't play against it at all. That's why that's why she has her results, So. You have to have patience, um, but you also be, have to be attacking. So, look, I think some of the bigger-hitting players who run height will, will overpower her. Um, Serena's, Osaka's, um, you know, those sort of players um, who she, uh, she, hasn't, uh, she hasn't played a lot against. She's had some great results, but you know, hasn't played those top players um, much in, the, in, in her results. They've all dropped out um somewhere along the lines uh Kvitova on grass for instance, very powerful lots of lots of clean winners, those sort of players, but you know she's number one for a reason she's been the most consistent and um even though the women women's ranking is a bit a bit weird, I must say, but she still i think deserves to be number one um or certainly if not very close to it uh, because she's consistent and and she's able to win tournaments so um
1: that's uh that's sort of proof in the pudding. All right, let's wrap this conversation up by talking about the Super Saturday. You know, you were part of one of the most memorable Super Saturdays at uh, the U.S. Open. But do you think even Ooh. then, uh, you guys were talking in the locker room, it's good for TV and entertainment, but there should be a day off between semis and final? Uh, you think that conversation <laughs> yeah, yeah. was doing the rounds back in your days? Um,
2: well, yes, it was. Uh, there's no doubts about it. But... Um, you know, we we did what we were told, and and uh, whoever the network was then, I think it was CBS, but uh, was um, yeah, they paid the big money. They wanted the finals on the weekends. That's when people were watching the tennis. They didn't want a final on a Friday. Nobody was watching that. They were at work, um, so they wanted that. That's that's when they said they wanted. It. That's when they got it. So really tough on the players to play a five set semi final and a final. Um. The the argument against that was was the, the uh, original Super Saturday, which was the most unbelievable day of tennis, arguably and probably in the history of tennis. Um, and uh, there will be docu- documentary coming out about it as the greatest day of tennis of all time. And it's and it's you know started with Arthur um, with John Newcomb beating Stan Smith in the Legends event, and then followed by. Myself losing to Lendl 7-6 in the fifth having match point, uh, followed by Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova 7-5 in the third for the final of the women's, followed by McEnroe beating Connors 7-5 in the fifth. Uh, Twelve hours of, of nonstop, unbelievable tennis. And, um, you know, the next day I was absolutely beaten. I was a 19-year-old. I was, I was, I was exhausted. And I talked to McEnroe, McEnroe who beat Lendl that the next day, in the final was a twilight final. Um, so he didn't have twenty four hours off. McEnroe had the, the, the least, but he said he walked in the locker room that day. He was absolutely exhausted, and he looked across the other side of the locker room, and there was Lendl who couldn't bend down to pick up his t- pick up his uh, tennis rackets. And he thought, oh my, he says he's worse than I am. <laughs> so I've got to- mm. And if you've ever played McEnroe, you know that you're jerked all over the place to beat him. You have to be really sharp really fit because he's going to move you everywhere. So you think the conversation Uh,
1: in in this era kind of uh, took more momentum because it's very hard to win against the TV networks but finally they got the semifinals on Saturday. You think the conversation just kept evolving and then uh, and I guess uh, it's uh, it's fair to say game is more physical now even though you guys were playing at a very top level so you think that probably has a lot to do with it that finally we have uh, semifinals on Fridays and final on Sunday?
2: Um... Well, I think the matches tended to be longer, but uh, now um, than, than they were. The points tend to tend to go longer. Of course, it was quicker courts, so the, the uh, you know, serve and volley, the point was over. But you know, I, it, it depends on who you talk to. But you know, the, the serve and volley physically it was very, very tough. Um, it's a lot easier to serve and just stand still and then run around across the baseline than to serve, sprint. Lunge, come back, lunge again. Sometimes go back for a smash, um, and then and then sometimes it's a fault, and you have to sort of repeat it again before you even start the point again. So, uh, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Some players, old players, they say, "Oh, much harder to, to serve a volley." If you're exhausted, what do you do? You don't sprint to the net. You you, you sprint, you, you serve, and stand there, don't you? Mm. Um, I, I, I personally found. Yeah, baseline tennis much easier to do than than uh, serve volley physically. Um, but having said that, um, you know, I just think it was wrong to have the semi-finals and the final on the two days, and and um, and and, and uh, eventually common sense won. An ATP tour had developed some power of some sort and
1: and uh, put pressure to do that the right thing for the players. All right, Pat. That was really insightful. I enjoyed it. I hope you know whoever tunes in to this conversation, you know, takes a lot out because this is kind of like tennis gold. You know, a lot of honest, you know, uh, unfiltered. You know, not that we were, you know, in any controversial territory, but you know, this really good stuff. Uh, thanks for your generous oh, time. Great. I know you were busy with coaching. I really enjoyed it. Uh, much appreciated. All right, all you're the best. Thanks Thank a lot.